when we talk about kings in this country, we talk about, oh, all of us are royalty in the kingdom of God. We're kings and queens. During David's time in this series, I'm repeating that because I forgot to push start on the podcast. This series on David <laughs> that we're in, kings in that time were viewed as terrible. Kings were awful. Kings were mean. Kings took over your city and killed everybody and let nothing stand because they wanted to start fresh. So there's a lot of different views that we need to look at, but there's also just the, the reality that the story of David is crazy and it takes a lot of twists and turns and he's not the hero all the time and he's very confused a lot of the time and sometimes he does a lot of good and sometimes he's evil just like every other king. And so we find someone who's very human who's been made a hero when we read about him because, you know, he was a man after God's own heart is the quote, which hopefully we can dive into what that means a little deeper. But to, tonight, I wanted to highlight one of David's best songs, best poems that he wrote that we've talked about before. But the reason I want to do it is because of a little line that he writes in it. And it's Psalm 23, which is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Who, you guys have heard of that before. That's, that's the thing we read. And that's, we, we apply that to so many different situations in our life. And it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the, the Hebrew for rod is, is me. Just kidding. <laughs> you, and, and then I find this, this cool little verse. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David oftentimes writes these poems or these songs in this arch of like, bad stuff's happening, but God's here to rescue me. Or, you know, that, that's, that's kind of how he tells a lot of the stories. David would have understood, and I've shared some of this with you guys before, that the valley of the shadow of death isn't some abstract place. It, it was a canyon in Israel with two high walls that shepherds would have their flocks grazing and flash floods would crash through it and kill everything. And, and if you were in the valley of the shadow of death, which there's many different ones, but there's a specific one between Jericho and Jerusalem that you had to walk in order to get between the two that was very, very, very dangerous. And so that was kind of highlighted the valley of the shadow of death. Anna and I had the opportunity to go to Israel and walk it, and I was scared. Some of those twists and turns and hills and cliffs as we were walking it, and I just had to convince myself um, thousands of people do this every year, so we'll be okay. Turned out we were okay, but I was thinking about herding sheep down at the bottom of it, and if a flash flood were to come through, it would kill everything. And so David is relating that physical thing that people call the valley of the shadow of death to his life. As Saul's trying to kill him, as he's, and he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, like a true poet would, like they would create that 
moment of something real and apply it to their life. You, you rot on your staff. They comfort me. You preserve me. You keep me alive in here. And then he would add, you know, after the flash floods come through in the desert, might I add, they leave these puddles of water everywhere. And when those puddles of water sink into the ground, they cause little patches of grass, just little tiny clumps of grass to grow up and the sheep can eat and not starve in the desert. And shepherds during that time called those little clumps of grass that would pop up in the desert, they called them green pastures. And when we hear green pastures, we think like the grass is greener on the other side of the fence type thing, rolling hills, green pastures, happy sheep jumping over the fence so that I can sleep. And that's not what it was. A green pasture was something that popped up in the middle of the desert. And it wasn't crazy abundance. It was just enough to survive. And still waters wasn't a lakeside with your boat and your dock built. It was a puddle that was created by something that just tried to kill you. And somehow you began to understand that even in this dangerous world, God has a way of making all things work together for good. The thing that once was dangerous is now preserving my life. And David developed this trust for God in the cycle of the valley of the shadow of death. And as a poet, he applied that to his life. So when Saul's chasing him, here's what he writes. It's coming for me, but God will lead me. Green pastures, I'll take the place of a sheep so I can understand more that God is with me. And you get this tinge of like Emmanuel. You see this leading, this making you lie down in green pastures, this causing you to rest even when you don't know how to rest. And it's not like we, we know we need to rest and we don't. It's like we know we need to rest and we try to plan it out and plan our rest and make ourselves rest. We don't know how to rest. And so God comes alongside and makes us and, and gives us and provides for us. And at the end of the day, when we look back on it all, we're like, whoa, I'm a lot further along than I was. And I don't really know why, but I can only credit that to God. And David helps me understand by saying, you've walked with me. And so the next little, little verse that stands out to me in Psalm 23, David writes, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When we talk about social justice, there's a lot of Christians, specifically white evangelical Christians, who've pushed back against social justice. It's caused a, it's caused a rift in the church where we've labeled words. Don't use that word. It's bad. Don't say this word. You can say this word. It's good because social justice also deals with this concept of bringing people together and giving people voices. And it's dangerous when we give people different than us voices. But for David, who was the youngest and the weakest in his family, and all of this, this journey we see him to become king, he needed a seat at the table from his perception. If, if I don't have a voice, I need a voice. And in order for me to have a voice, someone has to have a table and they have to let me have a seat at that table 
so that I can have a voice. And that's a difficult thing to understand for someone like me who's been like given <laughs> everything um, since I was born in this country because I'm a man, because I'm white. And we don't, we don't need to dig into all of that because I have plenty of arguments with friends about how they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and how can I say that? But until you put yourself in the shoes of someone who's actually never had a seat at a table of influence, we can never understand. And so in social justice circles, we talk about giving everyone a seat at the table. And imagine the messiness that would happen if everyone sitting around a big table had an equal voice. We would fight. We would yell at each other. We would argue. And then things would be different. But in this world, and this is the sad part, I have good news and I have bad news for us tonight. In this world, even when we talk about giving someone a seat at the table, it never really happens. If I'm the boss of, and I own my business and I say, I want to hear from all of you. Come to my table and share your thoughts and share your opinions on how to make this business better. You're going to feel excited because I'm giving you a voice and the social justice language is I'm giving you a seat at the table. And then you're going to come and sit at my table, but you're going to be afraid because you don't want to offend me because <laughs> you want to keep your voice. And so you learn to speak strategically. You learn to not say anything that might ruffle my feathers and you learn to play this strategic game so that, when the big thing comes that you need to change, hopefully you'll have enough voice and trust and rapport that you'll be able to speak into that. So you let all like these little things go. And oftentimes, like we're talking about women in the workplace, in this world, in almost any environment, we're talking about people of color. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about things we don't fully understand. But even with that, for all of us, we know how it feels in different environments to want a seat at the table, sometimes to get a seat at the table, but then to try to navigate that seat at the table turns into this circus of like, I don't really have the power and authority that I thought I had. I have to not step on toes. I have to, I have to be good. And that's because it's not your table. It's their table. So at the risk of getting the entire realm of God's justice wrong in this moment, I'm going to take a little risk because of what David, the human being who made a lot of mistakes, wrote in a poem when he was trying to understand how God takes care of us in dangerous and scary situations, in situations that press us and push us and stretch us, basically life. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
we spend a lot of our time trying to get seats at other people's tables so that we can try to have influence in those tables. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's hard and it's brutal and it's exhausting. And you're constantly being um, condescended upon and reminded, hey, you're here, but it's not your table. You have a seat at my table. All the while, it seems that there's something in the kingdom of God that does it differently. Where God prepares you a table in the presence of the place where you've been trying to find a seat at the table. It, it changes it when, you, when we begin to understand and try to grasp that you don't and I don't actually need to be at someone else's table if God's made us a table that's for you. What it changes is you have a responsibility with your table <laughs> to invite others to it and call it our table. And if you don't do that, then you're just like the people who've put you in your place a thousand times. And it seems to me that the kingdom, God's justice, does it about 10,000 times better than the language we use when we talk about social justice. Because when you add Jesus into it, and when you add that God is with us in that, there's this reality that happens that I know it's been hard. I know you've been in the valley of the shadow of death. I know I've given you just enough to survive and still waters and green pastures. And I know if we look back at our lives tonight, we would, be, we would say, I'm still standing. I've been pressed, but not crushed. I've been persecuted, but not abandoned. I've been struck down, but not destroyed. Some of us more than others, like I mentioned earlier. But at the end of the day, we would say, Emmanuel has been with me and I have some authority in my life. God has prepared a table for me right where I'm at right now that I can invite others to come and partake in that. And it can be our table. And it seems like God gave David a table. And he did a terrible job with it. We'll get into that in future days. It was awful what he did with his table. But it doesn't change the reality that God has given you a table. And in, in this country, we long to sit at someone else's table because their table is more famous or we believe that they have more influence. And we feel like we want to speak to that influence. But I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And it seems to me the people we remember most in this world, they owned their own table. Mother Teresa had somehow by some miraculous doing in her heart, no desire to be part of someone else's table and have an influence there. She wanted to take what God gave her 
and share it and make it everyone else's table around her. You guys following? It's every story of impact that we find in this world. Like I said last week, Anna and I are going to Vermont in a couple weeks to speak at this retreat. And I was sharing about Edison Chapel with the pastor of this church I've never been to. And he got pumped out of his mind. And we were talking about all the things that are happening in this neighborhood. And I reached a point, I, I can't put it into like a formula or an explanation. That's why I haven't written a book about it yet or anything, because I, I'm not sure how to even talk about what God has been doing. It just is amazing me. And I asked this pastor, humbly, I just said, you hear me share all this stuff. What do you think the difference is? Because you're telling me it's different. And he said, I'm not sure if I know every difference, but I think that church culture is so caught up in getting as big as you can and becoming the next big thing and taking a job at the next church and the next big church. And then pretty soon you can have a job for a denomination and you can work and see, oversee a lot of churches and everyone is clamoring for that. But it seems as I understand it, Rod, as, as a person just embraces what's set before them and dives full steam into that, it seems that Jesus meets you there and provides everything. And he's like, your story is awesome. It's not unique. I've seen it happen anytime I see someone just put their head down and dive into the thing that's right in front of them, the table that God has given them. And I was like, oh, we are kingdom-minded people. We don't fully know what God's kingdom is. Entire denominations have split over it, but we know it's in there and Jesus talks about it and he says it's better and I'm bringing it and it's in you and it's around you and you need to open your eyes and see it. And then he also says, you're supposed to bring it. You're supposed to forcefully, forcefully bring it. And we know that it involves peace and we know that it involves ending gun violence and housing. And we know that it involves people understanding how much Jesus loves them and that he died for them so that they can have wholeness and their life can be eternal and abundant and full in ways that they could have never imagined that oftentimes we take for granted. And we know it's there, but we kind of don't really have a clue what it's about. And so we put our heads down and we just go with it. And we say, Edison Chapel is not supposed to have Edison Chapel, Africa, Edison Chapel, Antarctica, we're not supposed to have the Edison Chapel network for all churches and an archbishop. We're supposed to put our head down and do the work that's right before us and Jesus will meet us where we're at. That's our table. You've prepared for me a table. Now, Abram is the cutest kid in the world. He is not distracting me. I just look at him and I'm like, I think it's beautiful that he feels safe in this church to be a kid. I distracted myself talking about him. He was not distracting me at all. When you can agree that God's given you a table and that your job's not to clamor to be part of someone else's table, two things will happen, I think. 
one, you'll be free and you'll break all the rules and you'll change everybody's life around you because they'll come to your table and you'll say, this is our table. You have that responsibility and you'll invite others into freedom from the rat race to just simply love and impact others. And two, as I've experienced, when you own the table that God set before you, people who are in the realm that you stepped away from trying to get into their tables. And when you left and just realized God gave you a table, call it business, call it ministry, call it church, call it education, call it your family. Like when you own the table that God gave you, no one around you who's still at the other tables will have the slightest idea what you're doing. They won't understand it. And your job is not to argue with them or convince them that your table's better. Your job is when they burn out and when they're exhausted and when they've been beat up again and when they've been spoken down to again and when they don't believe in themselves again for the 83rd time because all they wanted was a voice. Your job at that point is to just with an open hand say, there's a seat for you at this table. This is your table that God prepared for you. And that's what we're trying to do at chapel. And when that happens for people, we get to say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The, the biggest example I've had that I'm beating like a dead horse is that I set a table, Rod Tucker Chess Club table. And I didn't say this is our table. We wouldn't have the best chess players in Kalamazoo there. We would have a mediocre table where I need to be in charge. But because it's our table, we're seeing transformation. What is your table? This is turning into like a typical sermon, so sorry. What is your table that God has given you to open up to others and say, this is ours? Because I promise you, if you're tired from trying to have a voice at the tables that you sit at, or you have, are trying to, you're tired of and exhausted from trying to get a seat at a table that no one's going to let you on. And if they ever do let you on, they're going to constantly condescend you and let you know it's not your table. If you've experienced that, imagine the people around you. Imagine their exhaustion. Imagine their tiredness. And we can say, oh, you're, you're at the wrong table. There's a table that's specifically designed for you. And I want to invite you to it. That's the supernatural spiritual power that we have to perform miracles in people's lives. By inviting them to the table that God made for them. So they can say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. All the days of our lives and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, um, we want to be people who step into 
the table that you have built for us in the presence of our enemies. And we want it to be a table that receives everyone. We want it to be a table of no judgment. We want it to be a table that empowers people. And you've given us that. So please help us as chapel be that. And please help us as people be that. Because we no longer want to play the game of climbing ladders on other people's tables. We want to set people free by inviting them to the table that you've made for them with no agenda, just because you love them. In Jesus' name, amen. Saturday, this Saturday, we're gutting that house at 9 a.m., 1514 Lay. Text me, Facebook me if you have any questions. And is that all? Stay and chat a little bit. We're in no rush except for the snow. <laughs>